If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you go ahead and grab that this morning. Turn over to Acts chapter 13 as we continue in our, our series here. Uh, getting through the book of Acts, we're talking about the first missionary journey of the church and how Luke has recorded for us these events that took place very soon after the, the church really began in Jerusalem and then began to spread and, and move outward. And the title of the message this morning for us is God-Centered Lives, God-Centered Lives. Lives, And we're in week number 16 as we're walking through this section of the book of Acts. Now, we're going to pick up the events kind of where we left off last week in uh, verse number 13. So if you have your Bible, if you didn't bring it or haven't got there yet, the text will be on the screen behind me here. But here's what we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 15. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Persia to Antioch in Poseidon. And there on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, pause here for just a moment. So again, what we've found here is Paul, that's the Roman name of the individual whose Jewish name up to this point in the book of Acts has been Saul, right? And he and Barnabas are continuing their missionary work. They've left the island where we, we were looking at their work last week on Cyprus, and they've headed north up into the region that's called Galatia. And, and from there, they've kind of gone into the specific local area of Poseidon and to a city named Antioch. Now, if you've been tracking through the book of Acts, you're thinking, Antioch, that, you know, there's a whole bunch of names in here for regions and places that aren't really like our names and, and places, but, but Antioch might seem familiar to you, and if that's the case, you're right, because we talked about how Saul and Barnabas were sent out of a town called Antioch, right? But that Antioch is a different Antioch than this one that they've gone to now. We call this Poseidon Antioch to distinguish it from Antioch in Syria, which is where they were at the church they were leading and sent out from by the Holy Spirit we just talked about a few weeks ago, right? So these are, these are totally separate places, very distinct geographically. And I find it interesting that they're both named Antioch. It just creates a little confusion for the, the modern reader because they share the, the same name. But as I was thinking of that this week, I was reminded of a commentary on this passage that I had read a while back and, and I explained why this name shows up in uh, the uh, book of Acts here, the same name, but in different locations. So apparently what had taken place was when Alexander the Great was conquering, you know, he conquered so much of the known world. As he's conquering all these different locations, his generals would find these wonderful places, pieces of land or small areas that they had conquered, and they would establish their own cities there. And one of his generals in particular had established something like 16 cities and named every single one of them Antioch in honor of his father. <laughs> so he was a great general, a wonderful warrior, apparently not very creative on the naming side of things. So I, I remembered as I read that, the correlation that I had thought of a few years ago when I read about this being so many Antiochs all throughout that area was basically Antiochs like the Springfield of the ancient world, right? <laughs> Like, there are Springfields everywhere in the United States. Depending on how you look up your statistics, it's, it's either 35 to 40, somewhere in that range, cities or townships named, uh, named Springfield all throughout the U.S. And Springfield is all over the world. Like, almost every country has a Springfield. It's a very 
common name. I learned very quickly, because we lived in Springfield, Missouri for so long, you just said Springfield. Everybody knew what Springfield you meant. I came up here, and I said, we moved from Springfield, and people kept asking me, Springfield, Illinois? I'm like, I've never even been to Springfield, Illinois. But because it's closer to us, right, I had to begin to distinguish. So we have to do that with the Bible sometimes, right? So there's Antioch that's in Poseidon, and there's Antioch in Syria, and they're two distinct places. Now, as Paul and Barnabas have gone to this new Antioch that they have gone up to, the, the way they decide to begin their missionary outreach in the city is they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day because they want to share the news of Jesus first and foremost with the Jewish people who live in this city. I love that the very last line that we just read here is that they're actually invited by the leaders of the synagogue to stand up and address the group. I think that's just awesome. I mean, what kind of missionary encounter is that, right? Like, hey, you're here. You've, you, you got anything you want to share with us, right? Like, Randy's experienced this in Guatemala. That's a little different. You don't see that all the time. But this was a common practice in that day. And so they're invited to share. And I think it's important for us to remember that Christianity and Judaism, they are separate, distinct, but they do have a relationship to one another. The Jewish faith was the foundation from which the church grew. The Old Testament shows us that it was these people, the Jewish people that God had revealed himself to, he had chosen as his special people, right? He had done great miracles and signs and wonders among them. He had given them the law. He'd raised up all the prophets to instruct and speak on his behalf all through the Jewish nation. He had received worship from the people of the Jewish faith, right? All throughout the Old Testament time. And so when the Messiah, when Jesus comes as a Jewish person in the Jewish culture, growing up in the Jewish religion, he spends the bulk of his ministry time, if you read it in the Gospels, reaching out first and foremost to who? To the Jewish people, right? They were the ones who were supposed to be expecting and looking for him. They were the ones who should have recognized when he showed up on the scene, this is the one who we have been seeking all these years. But many rejected him right? Especially in Jerusalem. The closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more the opposition builds, and the religious leaders there are the ones who eventually put him to death. They, these were the people who should have, above everyone else, understood who Jesus was, what he had come to do. They should have celebrated, rejoiced, and embraced him, but that was not the response. So following the ascension of Christ, as he goes into heaven and the disciples are given that great commission to go and proclaim the name of Jesus and the message of Jesus, all around the world, to all different kinds of people, they still begin with the Jewish people, by and large. Because again, as they go and travel, they want to start with the people who should have some knowledge, some expectation in their hearts, some desire to hear of the fact that the Messiah has truly come. So here in Poseidon, Antioch, this is what Paul and Barnabas do. They go into the town, they go into the synagogue, and on the day of worship, they're invited, hey, do you have a message for us? And they think, do we have a message to share? Yes, we're missionaries sent out to proclaim a message. So they stand up, and here is the sermon that Paul preaches there in the synagogue. I want us to see it in three parts, because I think there's three parts to Paul's message here as he preaches it. Let's look at Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 25. So receiving the invitation, Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. 
And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them the land as their inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. After that, he gave judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they, the people, asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what, do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, this first part of this sermon here, how Paul begins his message to them, is he starts by explaining the history of the Jewish people, but in a very God-centered way, right? This is not how most teachers present history, (laughs) It doesn't sound quite like this. And in fact, unfortunately, it's not how most of us as Christians talk about history either. Notice the difference of what we see here. In just these nine verses, the first nine verses of the sermon, did you notice that Paul said 13 times that it was God at work in those specific historical events? If you have your text in front of you, look at this again. It says first, God chose the people of Israel. And it says that God made great or numerous those people in Egypt. God led the people out of Egypt by his power. God put up with the people in the wilderness during their 40 years of rebellion and complaining. God is the one who destroyed those seven nations in Canaan. God gave the people of Israel that land as their inheritance. God then raised up judges to deliver them time and time again. It was God who gave them Samuel the prophet to lead them. It was God who gave the people Saul as their king because they desired to have one and be like the other nations. But because of Saul's rebellious heart and evil actions, God removed Saul from the throne of Israel and God gave Israel David to be the king. And God spoke of David having a heart after himself. And then Paul jumps way ahead chronologically and says, it's that same God who is active in all those things, who did all those things, who has now, verse 23 says, sent to Israel the Savior Jesus, who he had promised long ago. It was, it was to Jesus, Paul says, that John the Baptist, who was very famous in his day, everyone had heard of John the Baptist, he says it was to him that John the Baptist was pointing, desiring that he would be the one who was worshipped and honored. So I, I love, as I read this part of the text, to see how Paul understands the meaning and the proper way to view and speak of history here. This is how we should work to emulate speaking of the past, too. This is a model for us, an example and a challenge for us. Again, it's not the most natural way for us to talk in this world. I mean, even as I talk about something as near and dear to me as my own past, my own history, this isn't the type of language that comes most natural. I can be tempted to speak just as humanly as everyone else can, right? So if something were to happen to me uh, and you needed to write an obituary of my life, this would be information you would probably do. This isn't probably how it would sound. I was born in the town of Conway Springs, Kansas. My family and I moved to Marionville, Missouri when I was about 16 years old. I went to Central Bible College when I was 18. I got married at 20 years old between my sophomore and junior years of college. Malia and I lived in an apartment, then a rental home, then we bought our first home shortly after we found out we were expecting our firstborn son, Tobiah. Later, we sold that house and bought a second home after we knew we wanted to have another child during our time there in Springfield. Uh, 
during that whole period, I worked several different jobs. I worked for Central Bible College. I worked for the Assemblies of God National Office. I worked for Evangel University as a professional IT uh, system administrator, network administrator. Did that full-time while I pastored part-time throughout all those years at Evangel Temple Christian Center in Springfield. Eventually, I left behind IT, went to work full-time at that church just before we had our second child, Julia. Then we moved to Nelsonville here in 2018 for me to pastor this church family, and here we welcomed our third son, Noah, into our family. Now, those are all very true things about me. That summary is, is brief. It's just hitting on some highlights, you know, where I lived, where I worked, and when my family kind of grew. But it's a great, it's a, an accurate way to reflect on the history of, of my life. But really, it's a very superficial summation of my life. Not just because it lacks details, but because it really fails to touch on the one who the story is really all about. It's not really about me. My life isn't actually about me. So what I could do, and what I would do if I thought intentionally about it, is I would retell my own history, my own story, in a way that actually touches on the deeper things of reality, ways that are connected to the bigger picture of why I even exist. So I would rephrase that. I would tell my story like this. God brought me into this world by his divine plan according to his perfect timing and placed me into the Jesh family in Conway Springs, Kansas. God saved me as a small child in a little country church just a few miles north of the town that I was born in. God graciously used me in my childhood years to share the gospel with several different people. I saw uh, other kids who were my age and younger come to know Jesus, even some adults that I got to witness to and see come to faith. God led my family to a number of churches during my upbringing throughout that period. And I learned a lot about him and his word and got a passion for the Lord through that time and learned a lot about how to serve as I served in various capacities, doing all kinds of different things all throughout my childhood in the churches that I was in. And those are things that shaped me. And I still discover, oh, that actually prepared me well for this even today. When I was 16, as I said, God moved me and my family to Missouri and at that time, led me through a very difficult period of life as my mother decided to leave my dad for another man and tore our nuclear family apart. Through that season, though, I, God's hand was at work as he brought godly mentors into my life and a great pastor into my life who not only ministered to me and my dad through that difficult season, but actually was used by God to affirm how the Lord was calling me into a life of pastoral ministry. So at age 18, in light of the influences that God had put in my life during that period of time, God led me to Central Bible College, where God gave me the second greatest gift of my life behind only my salvation. Then second day on campus, I met my lovely wife, now Malia. And after we had spent two years together at Central Bible College, God united us together for life in marriage and opened up the doors for us to finish our degrees and begin working at Evangel Temple there in Springfield. In 2013, God gave to us our firstborn son, Tobiah, and continued to lead and guide me in serving people through using those IT skills that he had developed in me while simultaneously growing and developing me as a pastor and a theologian and a husband and a father. He was doing a lot of work in me at that time. In 2018, after having celebrated God giving our family our wonderful daughter, Julia, just about 10 months before that time, God led us to uproot from Springfield and moved us to Nelsonville, where the hand of God has been working in us and through us and through this church that we're a part of to, to see his kingdom expanded and his people grown over these several years. 
In 2022, after sustaining our family through a very difficult time of dealing with two back-to-back miscarriages, God blessed us with our son, Noah. In the midst of all of those things, God has been at work in big ways, cultivating, growing, pruning, preparing his people in this place for the future plans that he has here. Now, that version of history is a little more aligned with reality, the deeper things of reality than the first version, right? Because this story that I just recounted, yes, it's my story, it's my history, but it fits into the story of God that is unfolding. And as I look back, I can see either this just happened or I can see God was doing this during this period of life. See, God is the main figure, in reality. He's the one who this is all truly about. He's the central character in this story that is unfolding. The, the name, the title on the cover, it's not you, it's not me. We're just little bitty pieces. We're not even chapters in the book. We're just little bitty parts of this great story of God, who he is, and what he's doing that is unfolding. And Paul gets that right as he looks back, not then at his own history alone, but the history of a whole people, a whole nation of Israel. He says that whole story, everything that took place over all those hundreds of years, it wasn't about any of those figures in particular. It was about what God was doing through the nation. So Paul sets up this, this idea with the people to, hey, as you think about who you are and where you've come from and what has happened, see that it was God at work. That's how he introduces his first part of his sermon. And then he starts the second part in verse 26, saying this, Now, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption corruption. This section of Paul's sermon right here is, is him saying, okay, if the whole story's about God, then here's the center of the story. Here's the, the main point to not miss. It's God has sent the Savior. The life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, this is the key point, the climax of the story. Paul doesn't hold anything back in his preaching to, again, a group of Jewish people, right? As he says, hey, it's your sinfulness. It's the blindness of the Jewish leaders who were down in Jerusalem, who rejected Jesus, who failed to understand who he was and had him killed. But 
Despite that's what they did, the main character of the story is God. And what did God do in response to that? God raised him from the dead. He points out to the people, hey, all of what has taken place, it's all the fulfillment of the scriptures that were spoken so long ago, revealed by God so long ago to the Jewish people. He cites in this one section of his sermon from Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, Psalm 16-10, and in just a moment, he cites from Isaiah 29-14. Paul's point in this sermon in Acts 13 is that Jesus is the very center of history. It's, it's to him that we're supposed to look. Not us, not our lives. We are not the center of all things. Poseidon Antioch wasn't the place to be. This was just a moment, a place in this unfolding story of God that centers on who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and as he explains in a moment, what Jesus is still at work doing. All of the prophecies and promises of God, the whole point of the scriptures that the Jewish people had was to lead them to look for the Messiah. And Paul declares boldly to them, you've been looking for him, here he is, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. His life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, they are the fulfillment of everything that truly matters. So Paul moves then to the application of his sermon, the final part of his sermon, verses 38 to 41. He says, So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work you will not believe even if one tells it to you. What Paul is saying here is he's making clear the power and the purpose of the gospel for those who believe in Jesus, right? He says there is forgiveness of sins, freedom from sin, and the price of sin for those who believe in Jesus. This is what history is all about, and that matters to you, not because you're the main point of the story, but because he is, and by trusting in him and believing in him, it has implication for you. It will change things for you. There's forgiveness to those who believe. There's freedom from the law, he says, from trying to to be able to do everything that we can in our own strength to be perfect and righteous and good. He says you're free from that struggle, that failure that will constantly come about because none of us can succeed at that, right? Paul declares to these people, and I just echo to you today and declare to you today, Jesus is the way to salvation. He is the one who can forgive your sins. No matter how how bad they may be, Jesus is the way to real freedom. Freedom from guilt and shame that you have in your life because you're a rebellious sinner who has failed to be holy in this life, failed to do what you should do, failed to abstain what you should, from what you should not do. There's freedom in Christ from your failures. There's freedom from the bondage of the sins that are in your life that you just can't seem to put to death and overcome on your own. You've struggled with for so long. You can't overcome them alone, but there's freedom in Jesus. There's freedom from the corrupt heart that every single one of us has in our fallen natures that spews forth all this sinful stuff that we see in our lives, gossip and jealousy and anger and bitterness and depression and fear and every lust. There's freedom from all of that, from the heart that produces all of that in Jesus Christ. 
So what Paul says there in conclusion is this imploring of his listeners, the same thing I would implore of you today. Don't just hear these words. Don't just think, that's amazing, astounding. Everything points to Jesus. Look at this incredible life and death and resurrection that he had. That's amazing. Don't think that and then do nothing with it. He says, don't scoff at this message by remaining in your unbelief about the work of God. But Paul invites them to experience the application of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in their lives. The gift of salvation, the gift of freedom from sin. To believe in him and receive these great benefits. Every week, I'm praying that, that God would awaken hearts to have that response in our services today too. I pray this week, every single week, I pray, Lord, would this week be the week that someone who maybe has all the religious identifiers outwardly put in place, who's attending church like they're supposed to, just like these people were attending synagogue like they were supposed to, right? They looked like good religious people, but their hearts were not really truly seeing God as primary. They weren't really understanding the fullness of the message, the, the who Jesus was and what that actually meant in their lives. They weren't living in submission to Jesus as the one who alone could give them freedom from their sins and salvation from God. My prayer today is that this would be a day where true faith, true response happens in a heart like that. Because I, I've, I've seen more than enough in my time of pastoring here and in Springfield to know that there are some people who will play at Christianity for a really long time. People who, who will say, yeah, I get it. And they can put on a show. They can do the things that we would expect in their public lives, but really in their hearts, Really, in their minds, they still think, you know, this story is really all about me. <laughs> and they live like that's it. Like, they're the center of the universe. They're the main character in their history. They're people who are slaves to sin, and they are so blind to their need and their lack of true salvation that they live in self-delusion trying to delude other people. I'm aware that's true in gatherings of people who profess Christ. I've seen it. Far too many times to be naive and think, I, know, I like all you guys, so we're all good. <laughs> I know there's deeper things going on in your hearts. There's deeper things going on in my heart than what you see up here when we come together in a week. So my prayer is, Lord, you see the heart. You know where people really are. Don't let us ever stop pleading with the Lord to do the real work of causing a heart that may look good on the outside but is dead on the inside. May we never stop pleading for God to bring that person to true life in a gathering like this. So I'm regularly praying, Lord, bring people to salvation. So I'm going to regularly preach to you the gospel and the way of salvation and invite you to become a true child of God by repenting, putting your faith truly in Jesus Christ, submitting to him as your Lord and Savior genuinely. Paul got to see that response take place when he preached this sermon. Look at the results, verse 42. So as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And that's a good way to leave church, let me just tell you. If I'm walking out and you're like, Pastor, can't wait for next Sunday. Explain more to me the scriptures. I mean, I would feel great. After the message of the synagogue, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism began to follow Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them, continue in the grace of the Lord. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city had gathered together to hear the Lord. 
But when the Jews, and specifically he's talking about these Jewish leaders, saw the crowds, like those from Jerusalem, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So last week, when we looked at the island of Cyprus and the first stop and all the places they went there, we did not see massive conversions on that island initially, right? Here in Poseidon Antioch, we see the Lord bringing many to salvation through the preaching of the gospel the first time they have an opportunity to preach the gospel. And it wasn't just Jewish people that got saved in Antioch here, right? Many Gentiles began to come to faith. Paul and Barnabas got to understand, hey, the mission that God has given us to proclaim this news to the ends of the earth will be fulfilled. We're seeing those results happen as many Gentiles respond to the preaching of the word of God. And again, that's good news for us today. We shouldn't miss or gloss over that in the book of Acts because it directly applies to you and I who, who we don't sit here as Jewish people. That's not our lineage, right? We're Gentiles. So the fact that Gentiles were receiving and believing is how the message has come to you and I. We should praise God for it. But as I said very early on, I've said this outside this series, but in this very series too, we need to always be prepared as Christian people who are going to live on our mission to have two responses given to us. Rejection and responsive acceptance. Paul and Barnabas here face rejection, right? And, and we will too in our lives. They were actually, the text uses the word reviled by those who rejected their message and did not want to believe it. Then they were physically persecuted, right? And they were forced out of the town. That's just part of the reality of being an emissary, an ambassador of the kingdom of light in the kingdom of darkness that is this world. So you're going to face things like this, this kind of opposition, this kind of rejection too, as you're faithful to Christ. I don't ever want to give a false picture of Christianity where we come in here and we're all together and we're all kind of unified and so we're like, yeah, it's all going to be great. And we get this idealistic view and then we walk out the doors and things get hard and we're like, well, what happened? <laughs> I want us to come in here and be realistic. We're going to face opposition out there. We'll be rejected when we share the message of Jesus with other people. It doesn't matter how good your technique is. It doesn't matter how much of a relationship you've built up. There's still a possibility you're going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who's been on your heart for a lot of years, and they're going to say, I want nothing to do with that. And they will mock you and begin to revile you for doing that. That's a real possibility. But that should not discourage us or dissuade us. Because while there is rejection faced, while Barnabas and Paul here got rejection in Poseidon Antioch, what else took place? Many responded. Right? So yes, they were rejected by some, but there were many who believed the message of Jesus Christ, who were set free from their sins, who were given salvation, whose lives, whose eternities were changed. 
So yes, we may face rejection, but we can also expect there to be positive response when we obey Christ, walk in his ways, and proclaim the gospel to other people. Many believed in Antioch. Many have done the same by God's grace, not by my skill or my ability. Most of the people I have seen come to faith in Jesus Christ when I've shared the gospel with them, I've walked away thinking, you know, I probably should have said that different. I could have done this a little bit. I didn't feel like I perfectly nailed it because it's not about how great I was in the moment. It's about God's work in a person. So I've seen many people come to faith in Jesus Christ and grow in their walk with Jesus Christ. And I believe we'll see many more as you begin to do this faithfully, intentionally as well. So let's learn from Paul and Barnabas how to see the true meaning of history and our place in it. Like, it's not about you. (laughs) It's not about me. It's not about the organizations we build. To understand the centrality of Jesus and his accomplished work, that's the point of history, all of it. Our history, our lives, to point to him. And let's long for and work towards being a part of how it is that God changes the lives of people as they believe in the message that we will share with them so that they can receive forgiveness and freedom from their sins, from Jesus Christ. So as we end today and we get ready to head into another week, another week of work, another week of fasting and prayer, if you're participating in that with us on Thursday, I want us to begin that process right now by, by recentering ourselves on Jesus and the work of God in our own histories. So worship team, if you'll come and prepare to, to lead us in our final song, what I want us to do is just take a few moments here before we leave this place to repent of the sin of self-focus <laughs> that so many of us are captive to. Living as if we're the main characters in our stories rather than being aware of and focused on God's work in us, through us, and our part in his bigger story that's unfolding. To do that, maybe today you need, to, you need to come to the altar. Maybe you need to get out of your comfort zone a little bit because part of your story is the image you've cultivated. I'm not, the, I'm not the person who needs to go up and respond when the pastor says, you know, come repent of your sins. That's not me. Maybe today that's a way to get out of your comfort zone is to come here. Maybe you need to come to the altar for another reason too. Maybe there's some other need, some burden, someone else you need to, to pray for or have others gather with you to pray. The altars are open for all those needs, for anyone and everyone today. And as we lead up to and then take our time to to fast and pray on Thursday, I, I want us to, in that time, really ask the Lord to help us understand how is your life personally part of this great story that he's unfolding? And how do the lives of the people around you fit into that? How are we to be on mission? How are we to be furthering the kingdom of God? Help Pray this week. Ask him to help you see his work and his will for you, that he would lead you in what he wants you to do here and now how he wants you to serve, who he wants you to focus on sharing the gospel with, what things he wants you to give up that are distractions that that reinforce the idea that it's really all about you, and what things does he want you to embrace more of that would make you a more effective tool in the hand of God. Let's ask him to do that revealing work and that changing work in us personally this week and in, in our church family this week all together, that we would put him at the center of our lives. Let's take a few minutes to respond to ask him to make us ready for this week, to work in us and through us. Let's pray together the Lord will begin that work. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for the opportunity to take these few moments to respond and to be made ready by you. I pray you would cause us to lean into this in this moment, Lord.
to lean into asking you what you would have us do. And then may we be faithful when we leave this room to do that. Let's respond to the Lord this morning.